0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 42 In Fairness to Focus. Previously on the History of Byzantium, the Emperor Maurice spent 20 hard years grinding down the Persians in the east and the Slavs and Avars in the west. He struggled to pay the large army needed to maintain the empire's borders and asked one of his Balkan field armies to spend the winter north of the Danube. They refused, elected Phocas, the Hecatontarch, or Centurion, to be their leader, and in 602 they marched on Constantinople. Phocas was crowned emperor, and the heads of Maurice and his sons were brought back to the capital to be displayed. Before we jump back into the narrative, we need to talk briefly about the historians who cover the early 7th century and the bias they may present. Two of our main sources are the Chronicon Peschal, a Christian history of the world written in Alexandria, and the histories written by Theophylax Simocarta, an imperial bureaucrat who worked for the future Emperor Heraclius. Both works were completed in the 630s, when Heraclius had been emperor for a good 20 years, so it's no surprise that Focus, the man who Heraclius will overthrow, receives a bad press. He is described at different times as ugly, treacherous, sadistic, lecherous, and mad. He is almost presented as an embodiment of all that went wrong within the empire. But if we try to look past the propaganda, then I don't think Focus emerges from history as a new Commodus or Caligula. He was just a man with no legitimacy and no experience of government. And as the last ten podcasts have hopefully made clear, that was the last thing the Empire needed. Flavius Focus was born around 550. Given that he was a common soldier serving in the Balkan field armies, you will not be surprised to hear that we don't know exactly where or when he was born, or much about him, before he joined the army. He seems to have been a native Greek speaker, probably from the prefecture of Thrace, where the revolt sprang up. Rather than some tyrannical monster, it's most likely that Phocas was a highly competent soldier. After all, he was promoted to a position of leadership within his legion, and it seems likely that he was also part of a delegation that was sent to Constantinople to ask Maurice to cough up more money to ransom some captive soldiers being held by the Avars. If you'll recall, Maurice refused, and the men were executed, one of the grievances which led the army of Thrace towards mutiny. So Phocas must have been a persuasive man. One used to command and presumably somewhat charismatic. It's unlikely the army would have put forward a candidate to be emperor who was as unattractive as the history's claim. The first thing Focus did, of course, was to order the deaths of Maurice and his sons. And in fairness to Focus, he would have been stupid not to. We can debate whether or not the army should have revolted in the first place, but once they did the only way to establish the legitimacy of a new ruler was to eradicate any potential successors from the House of Maurice. It may seem brutal to have had their heads brought back to the capital, but rather than just a cruel display of power, this was actually a sensible precaution. Maurice had left the capital, and Focus had to make it clear to his subjects that the old emperor was gone, that there was no banner to rally to if you didn't like the new regime, look over there. That's where the old emperor is now. He isn't in the east, preparing a counterattack. Despite this precaution, however, that's exactly what happened. If you'll recall, Maurice had sent his nineteen-year-old son Theodosius east, presumably to rally armies there to his cause. When Phocas' men came back, they did not carry with them Theodosius' head, although they said that they did kill him. So the rumor spread quickly that Theodosius was in the east, and that he might well be calling on King Khosrow II, the man Maurice had helped put back on his throne in 591. Across the empire, men were having to make the decision of whether or not to accept Phocas as their new emperor. Most men lacked the resources to resist, and so gave their assent to the new order. But one man who didn't was the master of soldiers in the east, Narses. He refused to accept the new emperor, and began claiming that he was now the guardian of young Theodosius, who he said had arrived safely in the city of Edessa, where he set up his headquarters. Back in the capital, Phocas began a purge of those loyal to Maurice. Understandably, he executed the emperor's brother, Peter, and he was followed by the general Comentiolus, who Focus probably knew from his time in the Balkans, and Constantine Lardis, the Praetorian prefect, an unpopular figure thanks to Maurice's stringent economies. But that was that. Focus did not order a general slaughter or seem to revel in rivers of blood, he actually spared Germanus, who, if you'll recall, was the son of Justinian's cousin and had been briefly made Caesar by the deems, before they fell out over his right to succeed. He let Maurice's widow and his daughters live in the capital and, amazingly, was content to allow the general Philippicus to remain as Count of the Excubitors. Philippicus, you may recall, was one of Maurice's most trusted commanders and his brother-in-law. One source even adds that Phocas gave Maurice and his son's remains a Christian burial. Over in Ctesiphon, news of Maurice's murder was greeted rather warmly by King Khosrow II. However grateful he was to the former emperor for putting him back on the throne, Maurice's actions had left Khosrow in an unenviable position. Like the Roman emperor... The Persian king of kings was a position with a lot of propaganda and lofty claims behind it. The king of kings was a semi-divine ruler, someone with whom glory was associated, someone who demanded your respect and obedience, or else. It was harder to maintain your pretensions to glory when everyone knew that Roman arms had secured the throne for you. It was something of a humiliating position for a king of kings to be in. Khosrow had managed to emerge victorious from another civil war during the decade of peace with the empire, but crushing internal enemies would never establish him as a worthy ruler. No, he needed to defeat the Romans and prove that both he and Persian arms were greater than their inveterate rivals. The now 32-year-old king was therefore very interested to hear that not only had Maurice been overthrown by a usurper, just as he had been, but that Theodosius might be in the east in need of Persian aid. Why, this couldn't be a more perfect situation. The chance to march into Byzantium and forcibly install Maurice's son on the throne would wipe the slate clean. When Phocas's ambassadors arrived to inform the king of the news he imprisoned them. He then made contact with Narses, who he knew from the campaign of 12 years previously. Gathering up his armies, the king marched once again to Dara, the bulwark of Byzantine defence in the east. The city's commander was loyal to Focus, but was now badly outnumbered and was killed in the subsequent fighting. Dara was put under siege. While news of these events made their way toward the capital, Phocas quickly learnt that leniency is a double-edged sword. A year after he had taken power, Maurice's in-laws hatched a conspiracy to overthrow him. Their plan was to place Germanus on the throne, and they incited the Green faction to start a riot to get things in motion. That part went according to plan, with the centre of Constantinople once again going up in flames, with the prison being a particularly popular target. Focus, however, was up to the challenge. As a usurper, he knew his position rested on the support of the army, and so he had not sent all of his men back to their camps. Once he restored control of the city, he dealt with the conspirators, and in fairness to focus, He really could have been much harsher. After suitable punishments for the men of the Greens, he rounded up Constantina, Maurice's widow, and her daughters and forced them into a nunnery. Meanwhile, Germanus and Philippicus were tonsured and sent to a monastery. A pretty measured response from a man who still wanted to show the aristocracy that he was no monster from the rank and file. The new count of the Excubitors was to be Priscus, the general who you may recall, led the victorious campaigns into the homeland of the Avars. Speaking of whom, Phocas had now heard the worrying news from the east. Having spent his life in the Balkans fighting the Avars, the emperor wanted to make sure that they would keep quiet while he sent men east to see off Narses and Kusro. The Avars accepted a return to payments of tribute, and were at this stage in no shape to resume their raids. The Slavs, however, always quick to detect weakness in the empire's defences, did begin to cross the Danube again. Clearly, some large groups were able to invade, as over the next couple of years we hear of more attempts to break into Thessalonica, the regional capital. The men who were transferred east were placed under the command of a palace eunuch named Leontius and made their way to Dara by 604. However, Khosrow's army had had time to entrench. The siege remained in place and the Byzantines were driven off. Khosrow's army took many prisoners during the battle, and afterwards they were all executed. The king of kings had no interest in winning minor concessions, He wanted focus toppled, and his pride restored. By this time, Narses had handed over the man claiming to be Theodosius, and Cusro spread the word that he had Maurice's son in his care. Clearly, Narses had not been able to keep enough men on his side to face the armies loyal to focus, so he avoided battle and remained at large near the border. Phocas quickly sent his nephew Domentiolus to take charge in the east, but he was unable to do anything during 605 as Kusro sent armies to raid Byzantine territory before finally taking Dara after a long siege. The king destroyed parts of the walls to make sure the city could not be easily reoccupied. As the bad news piled up for Focus, another conspiracy was uncovered in the summer of 605. Once again, Constantina and Germanus were implicated. And with news that her son and his nephew, Theodosius, was apparently alive in the east, Focus snapped and began the brutal executions with which his name is usually associated. Men and women involved in the conspiracy were tortured so that they would name others who had been a party to it. Soon, Constantina, her daughters, Germanus, the Praetorian Prefect, the Count of the Sacred Largesse, and another former general of Maurice's all lay dead. Some had received rather cruel treatment. I'm not going to defend horrible punishments, but in fairness to focus, it was clear that those who had been in power during Maurice's time were just not going to accept him as emperor. He had no legitimacy to call on, so he used brute force. He was hardly alone amongst emperors for resorting to such measures. Soon, however, Focus's rage began to cost him. Out in the east, Domentiolus managed to track down Narses and convinced him to surrender with a promise of immunity. The rogue general returned to Constantinople and Phocas had him burnt alive. Or so the story goes. Either way, the murder of Narses was a mistake. With the Persians on the ascent, the empire badly needed experienced generals. And who had more experience of the situation than a man who had been campaigning in the east for over a decade? With Narses gone, Khosrow no longer had an ally with whom he could plausibly plot the overthrow of Phocas, And at some point around 606, Theodosius, if that is your real name, died in Persian custody. The chance to recreate the circumstances of his own restoration were gone. But with the Eastern Roman armies in such bad shape, and his own men itching for a fight, Kusro decided that annexation was as good as restoration. In 607, the Persians invaded Mesopotamia and Armenia simultaneously. The results were impressive and alarming. Dementiolus gathered the army of the east outside Theodosiopolis on the border of Byzantine Armenia and made a stand against the Persian general Shahin. Dementiolus was routed and the Persians took back all of what had been Persian Armenia for the last few centuries, while further south the general Shahbaraz invaded the territory near Azranin, and captured the Byzantine city of Amida. In one campaign, all of Maurice's work in the east was undone. These defeats did nothing to shore up Focus's authority. The emperor had no son, and attempted to forestall more coup attempts by marrying his daughter to the popular Priscus the implication seemed fairly clear, that Priscus would become emperor should anything happen to Focus. However, the Blues and Greens took this implication a little too seriously and put up images of the bride and groom alongside the emperor and his Augusta in the Hippodrome during the wedding celebrations. Focus, growing paranoid, took great offence at these honours and accused Priscus of being in on it. He didn't harm his new son-in-law, but the moment was unnerving enough that Priscus began to fear for his safety. Around this time, the general snuck a letter out of the palace, bound for Carthage, where he would ask his old colleague Heraclius to help him topple his unstable father-in-law. To add to the emperor's woes, bubonic plague returned to the empire in 608, Yersinia's familiar culling led to bad harvests and famine around the capital, while in the east, news continued to trickle in that the Persians were not leaving and could not be defeated. By 609, a Byzantine civil war had begun in Africa, which we will deal with next week. The important development for now was that this took more troops away from the east, leaving the area further depleted as the Persians continued to advance. In that year, Shahin occupied all of Armenia and captured Theodosiopolis. Shahbaraz took the rest of Byzantine Mesopotamia, placing the effective Persian border on the Euphrates River. These were the most significant victories either side had achieved for centuries. Shahin marched on and sacked the lightly defended Cappadocian capital, of Caesarea. Defending the city was Sergius, another relative of Phocas's and master of soldiers for Armenia. He was defeated and killed, and the Persians raided on through Anatolia. All the regular Byzantine troops were now behind them, scattered around the east. So meeting no resistance, the Persian army kept on going all through the summer, all the way to the city of Chalcedon just across the Bosphorus from Constantinople. This was the furthest west the Persians had ever been in the entire history of the Roman Empire. The raid was merely a smash-and-grab operation, but the news that a Persian army was that deep into Anatolia sent shockwaves through Romania. This sudden collapse of the empire's eastern defences had been threatened ever since 540, when Cusro I had sacked Antioch. When the Persians were on the offensive, only very large Roman armies could stop them. The problem was that the empire needed men in the west, as well as the east. We saw that under Maurice, the Byzantines were able to gain the upper hand, but only by leaving the Balkans undefended. In fairness to focus, it seems like he probably left a good chunk of men in the West to try and hold off a return of the Slav and Avar invasions that he himself had been part of overturning. But unfortunately, this meant that the army of the East, already split by narses' rebellion and then defeated by the United Persians, was in no shape to stem the tide. We saw in the episode on the Strategicon, that soldiers couldn't be replaced overnight. It took years to train them to be effective, and right now men were being lost everywhere, as the Persians struck in two places at once. Another small factor in the Persian success was Theodosius. Real or fake, the man claiming to be Maurice's son was paraded around the east, which helped persuade some that they should lay down their arms and accept Persian occupation as merely a temporary expedient. It seems that the swift fall of cities like Amida and Theodosiopolis may have been aided by a Byzantine perception that the return of their lawful sovereign was part of the deal. Which prompts the question, what really happened to Theodosius? The account which told us about Maurice watching impassively as his other sons were butchered claimed that he had given up on this life and recalled Theodosius to join him in his fate. That account was almost certainly written for the benefit of Heraclius. Once he had overthrown Phocas, there was no incentive for him to believe that Theodosius had gone on living or had perhaps sired an heir somewhere in Persian territory. Meanwhile, of course, it was very much in Cusro's interests to keep up the pretense that Theodosius had fled to him and therefore he was by rights taking Roman territory on behalf of his benefactor, Maurice. The reality is, of course, we don't know what happened to him. Perhaps he was killed on the road. Perhaps he died in the east of natural causes. Either way, he does not re-emerge to claim his throne, and so his fate remains a mystery. The next episode will be all about Focus's downfall, so I thought I should mention one minor triumph for the emperor before he goes. During the last few years of Maurice's reign, the outspoken pope in Rome, Gregory I, had complained about the titles used by the patriarch in Constantinople because they implied the primacy of that position over that of the popes in Rome. Maurice was decidedly cool in his response, but not focus. Like Justin before him, he was clearly from a family that respected the papacy above all others in ecclesiastical matters. His willingness to give the pope the exalted status he demanded and his support for the exarch in Ravenna led to an interesting distinction for the emperor. The Romans in Rome dedicated a column to him in the Forum. The column still stands today and is known as the Column of Focus. Fitting the economically shrunken times of the early 7th century, the column was merely a leftover from some grander building that had long been pillaged for its materials. However, the Senate were very happy to re-stand the column with a plaque commemorating the peace brought to them by the noble emperor Focus. In one corner of the empire, at least, the emperor was, however briefly, fondly remembered. Next week, the emperor will be overthrown, though, by Heraclius, the son of the exarch of Carthage. But rather than signalling a recovery, the bad news for the Romans has only just begun. I'd like to say a big thank you to those of you who've donated to the podcast Lots of you did so when buying the fundraising episode, but some of you have done recently with no prompting, and it means a lot to me that you want the podcast to continue. I'd prefer to thank you all personally, but I hope this will do for now. I'd also like to give another plug for the Byzantine Google Plus community run by listener Robert. If you're interested in finding out more about Byzantium, then it's a great place to be with links to interviews, books, places to visit, and all sorts of interesting tidbits. Just search for the history of the Byzantine Empire in Google+. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.